We can't manage what we don't measure. That's what the management guru Peter Drucker famously said. With the challenges that we as a planet collectively face, we need to know exactly what's going on before we can tackle it. And right now, more data is available than ever before. But how that data is accessed, interpreted and acted on is crucial to managing these crises. Enter the world of artificial intelligence, or AI as it's more commonly known. Data is shared 24 hours a day, seven days a week, by everyone and increasingly everything. We shop, we import data. We drive, our vehicles are spotted on a network of cameras. Every time we use a laptop, a phone, the endless apps we have, websites we visit, Google search terms, social media, TV preferences, and music services, they all leave a trail which enables data collectors to build an accurate picture of who we are. And AI is even eavesdropping on our conversations. There'll be more on that a bit later. So in a world that's driven by data, how do we make sure that we're safe? Mistakes can occur even in the safest systems. Machines can break down and cyber attacks are becoming an increasing threat. And how do you ensure that we keep a close eye on the autonomous technology such as robots, cobots and self-driving cars? So today I'm joined by a fabulous panel who will give us some insights on how to keep the march of robots in check and ensure that AI works for us rather than against us in the advancement of technology. Dr. Vary Aitken is from the Turing Institute. Vary is an ethicist and works in the areas of data and AI. She also does stand-up, so hopefully we'll see how those two match up a bit later on, Vary. Um, Lisa Allen is the Director of Data Services from the Open Data Institute. The ODI is a non-profit organisation founded by the inventor of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee. And Chris White is a Senior Programme Manager at Lloyd's Register Foundation. We'll also be hearing from Kaspersky, a leading cybersecurity company who will share some tips on staying safe online. So welcome to you all. It's so great to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, Before we enter the world of artificial intelligence, here's a very quick guide that you all need to know about the subject. To understand artificial intelligence, we must first understand data. Data is information that has been translated into a form that is efficient for movement or processing. And we now live in a world that is driven by data. When we get on an airplane or we get in a car, it's data-driven systems that control those assets. When we go into a hospital, we're looking for an operation. How do we know we're in the right operation? It's data. It's the data which sits behind the systems. All of these things are safety critical. So in a world which is driven by data, how do we make sure we're safe? Global industry is increasingly dependent on digital systems and those systems are inherently vulnerable to attack. And it's not just big business and governments that are at risk. Without the necessary checks and security, we are also at risk from losing assets, both financial and personal. Whether that's via a cybersecurity attack by malicious actors or an attack or accidental attack because someone's made a mistake, it's imperative that industries understand cyber systems and help to build and update skills and behaviours as advances are made in data collection and cyber technology. Autonomy of robots and cobots also requires a safety net in place to ensure that these systems can operate safely. Keeping people safe and secure in an increasingly digital world is key. Our challenge now is to make sure that these systems serve us as humans and keep us safe. 
That way, the films like Terminator can remain science fiction rather than a reality. Okay, everyone, a very quick icebreaker. I want to pick on on something I mentioned in the introduction. How concerned should we be about the amount of data collected by our smart assistants? So our Alexa, Google, Siri, and many, many more. Very, let's start with you. We should be a bit concerned, but maybe rather than concerned, we should be at least interested. We should take an interest in what, what these devices are doing so we can make informed decisions about what technologies we have in the home and, and in what circumstances we're willing to use them. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking of them, you know, we think of them as smart speakers, but if we think of them as smart listeners, maybe we might make some different decisions about what devices we want in our home and when we're going to use them. And who's listening? Is it is it humans or is it simple systems? Well, most of the time it is just a system. So most of the time okay. it's not actually uh, a person listening, but sometimes there could be. Um, and with something like an Alexa device, uh, the the audio that is recorded, uh, most of the time nobody will ever listen to that. But some bits of audio might be listened to by uh, people in distant locations working for Amazon you know, to check it for accuracies, to train the machine learning program, to train to check that it's working properly, um, potentially also for you know developing new products or new services. So I guess as a user, we'll never know which bits of audio or which of our recordings are being listened to or who's listening to them, but some of them might be some of the time. Chris, are you concerned? I'm not massively concerned, but I think the thing that does concern me is that these are all private companies. You know, until quite recently, we had no idea where that data was flowing. Um, and I think that's, um, and we still don't have a good handle on that. So I think that's the, the really critical point for for me is that if this was kind of open data or if this was data that was owned by us, and we could just make decisions on where that data went, then I think I'd feel a lot more confident about those type of assistance. That makes sense, yeah. Uh, Lisa, what is and isn't listening to us? Facebook, WhatsApp, you know, are, are they listening to us or is it just our smart speakers? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think if you ask people whether your mobile phones are listening to them, people would say yes. But that's often because the, the way they've been doing their searches and the way the data flows across platforms. So I think they'll say one minute they've said something and then the next minute it's, it's coming up in their Facebook feed. So I think there needs to be a great understanding, actually, about how these platforms share across them. And that they may not be listening, but they are definitely picking up the analytics and the searches and predictive behaviours across platforms. And that's why you often think the ones that aren't listening to you are listening to you. Um, but yeah, definitely Alexa and Siri are listening. All right. Thank you. Uh, let's unpick the world of data and AI right now. And, and Chris, I want to come to you from Lloyd's Register Foundation. You're going to help me with this because I guess the, the big challenge is to weigh up the benefits of AI with the risks. And there was a massive global study which resulted in the foundation's world risk report. Um, it engaged with 126,000 people over 121 countries. Chris, what were the key findings in that report? The kind of key headline points were really that that globally more than three quarters of people worry about their personal data being stolen online. And when we say this is a statistically representative of, you know, 121 countries around the world, this is quite a large number of people in the billions who are, who are worried about this type of thing. We also have that people in countries with lower incomes are, are most wary of potential harms of AI and personal data misuse. And that people who have experienced discrimination have stronger views on AI and online data use. The poll was able to really kind of get into picking apart the, the you know, different um, types of, of people across the world and their different um, fears. And I guess something that we might get to a little bit later was that globally, nearly two thirds of people wouldn't feel safe in self-driving cars. 
So the, the kind of four major headlines there, but the, f the first three really thinking about data and AI, that, that it is a big worry for a large amount of people around the world. And were there any, any regional variations? Um, yes, there were a lot of regional variations. Um, the majority uh, who said they were worried about the theft of their personal information online were in five regions. That was Central and Western Africa and Southeastern Asia, Southern Africa, Latin America, Caribbean and Eastern Africa. So you can kind of see a lower middle income country, I guess, slice through the world there in terms of groups of people who, who feel that, you know, organisations, but also their governments may not be um, using data that, that is collected in a, in a responsible way. And there's a clear increase in numbers of people using the internet and, and wealthier nations for sure. And whilst in, in lower income countries, the rise seems to be a bit smaller. So do you think there's a risk of increasing that digital divide between connected nations and those who rarely log on? Hugely. I guess one of the, the key points of the foundation is that we're looking to, to understand uh, the public's uh, understanding of risk. One of the ways you could do that would be digital. And you, you may think that um, you might want to communicate with a population through digital means, but the World Risk Poll shows that actually the, the numbers of people who are using the internet isn't growing that quickly within low middle income countries. And I think that's a, a huge, um, huge risk to the kind of rollout of, of internet more broadly and, and using the internet for more and more things like voting and for healthcare when um, a lot of people aren't using it or don't have access to it still. So I imagine the, the biggest threats to both individuals and businesses is the fear that they could be victims of fraud. So money being stolen from their accounts. Is that a fear? And, and what other fears do people have, Chris? Yeah, that, that's a real fear. The poll found that, that less financially secure internet users um, were much more likely to worry uh, about theft or unauthorised use of their private information online. So I think that's a you know, that's a real key takeaway from the poll. So when, when we talk about the um, regional variation, was there, was there any sort of clear regional variation in terms of both fear and risk? Around uh, artificial intelligence, there certainly was. Um, and I guess artificial intelligence and, and the way it uses data are, are quite well interlinked. Women were found to be uh, less likely than men to say AI would help them. And that was 35% to 42%. So that's a kind of a, a reasonably large variation. And we also found that in certain parts of the world, people thought that AI would help them versus AI would hinder them. So that the largest optimism about artificial intelligence and the way that data is used was, was found to be in uh, Eastern Asia, where 57% of people said AI would, would mostly help. Uh, while just 13% said it would mostly harm. By contrast, in, in several of the world's lowest income regions, um, places like Central and West Africa, so, uh, Southern Asia, um, AI would mostly harm people uh, in their countries was, was predominant. So, you know, there's a, there's a real shift in, in regional variation around the, the way artificial intelligence is thought about and, and the harm that it could do. That's really interesting. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Um, we'll hear again from, from you shortly, uh, but I want to move on to some of the AI applications that go beyond our data processing. So, so let's open up the discussion, Vary and Lisa. Is data sharing firstly unavoidable if you wish to be a member of a fully functioning society? Vary, is our trust in social networks misguided? That's a really good question. I, I sometimes wonder if it, if it really is trust. Like, you know, we act as though we trust them because we use them. I guess my concern is that maybe it isn't trust. It's maybe just complacency. You know, if you think back to like the, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal, you know, when that broke, there was, you know, it was a huge response. And there were loads of people saying like, this was outrageous. This was shocking. Uh, people saying they were going to leave Facebook, not use Facebook anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but very quickly, I think most people 
went back or continued using it. And actually what a lot of people were then saying was like, you know, it was terrible, but we never really trusted Facebook or we never really expected Facebook to be like doing good things you know, with our data. We knew they were doing something. <laughs> uh, we didn't know like what it was, we didn't know quite how dodgy it was, but we knew, you know, it wasn't all good. Um, and actually I think what that shows is that we don't have that high expectations of these companies to be handling our data responsibly or, or using it for social good. I think it's a it's a quite a large degree of complacency or or, or apathy, um, and that really worries me because actually we we should be holding these companies to account, and mm. we should be they have such a influence on our lives and an influence on our society. So that really we we should be demanding that they you know, use our data responsibly and that they are aimed at having some kind of social good and social value or social benefit. Lisa, I want to talk about the ODI because because um, you. Believe- believe that worldwide there is insufficient professionalism within the data domain don't you so so not all of the people looking after our data are tech ex- experts like like Barry was just saying uh, let's talk about data ethics Lisa what are the parameters in in what's acceptable and what's not yeah it's interesting isn't it because I think if you look worldwide at the data profession it's quite a young profession so if you think about finances, that's been around for donkey's years, hasn't it? You, know, you have your accountants, your CFOs, but data is a really young profession. So in some organisations, you won't even have the data professionals looking after the data in, in those organisations. So that's where, that's where we get that worried about that technical expertise, actually. So when we start thinking about data ethics, that's almost like, you know, you need your data professionals even to just do the basic core hygiene factors for compliance. And then you've got the bit that builds on top about the data ethics. And when we start thinking about what's acceptable or not, that's quite interesting because data ethics is really a, a rapidly emerging area. So we're really looking at people collecting, sharing and working with data and exploring the ethics in those practices. And some of those people are being forced to confront um, some of the, those ethical issues in the, in the face of public criticism, really, like the Cambridge Analytica one or um, recently with the Home Office, the, the training data set didn't include people of colour. So that meant when um, people of colour went onto the website to do their passport, their photographs weren't being accepted. That just shows the algorithms and how they've, that the data that's been trained from, um, that they've used in the machine learning, how biased it is and unrepresentative and that it knocks on. How do they become, how do these algorithms become biased? So it can become biased in a couple of ways. So if um, you're using the training data, that is not got, um, like in the Home Office case, like people of colour and diverse backgrounds, then they can become biased in that way because actually you have not exposed um, the algorithm to the full um, spectrum that it needs to, to be able to make those decisions. It can also become biased by um, people and what they have put in there from their own bias and assumptions are the the couple of the main ways that it can impact. And we did a survey actually um, a few years ago with YouGov and we looked at at data ethics and and we found that um, 87% felt that it was very important that organisations they interact with use data about them ethically. So this is in the UK. It was interesting to see 59% trust the NHS and healthcare providers to use data about them ethically. And they were the only type of organisation surveyed that were above the line. 5% trusted social media. So that goes down to what Barry was saying. But they still use them. So that digital resignation is quite strong. What are the impacts of, of having all of this data and, and hoarding all of this data? 
So it's interesting because we always talk about our theory of change and we talk about that um, you can have either hoarding or fearing. So when you get hoarding, you get like monopolies that the companies are set up that keep that data in silos for their own benefits. So this is where you start thinking about some of the social media companies. And then you can get data fearing where people actually get worried by things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and they won't give their data. So both of those don't lead to positive impacts because what you want to do with data sharing, we all understand that not all data can be shared. And at the ODR, you might have seen our data spectrum where we talk about data being closed, shared or open. And depending on that data, um, then depends on what you can do with it. And if you can share, then you get better innovation, you get um, efficiencies, you can do compliance. But if you get this hoarding, you can get negative impacts on society. And some, with some of the monopolies, you might get some of the companies that don't give access to the data or it's not of value anymore. If they're a commercial company, they might stop providing it, say, in rural areas. So you get a reduction in what can be done locally for people. So there's all sorts of negative impacts that can happen if you get that hoarding. Either they have you know, quite a lot of say in an area or they can withdraw the services but it's trust, isn't it? It comes down to that because you can get amazing benefits from sharing, but it's got to be in the right way. And there is so much data out there, Very, but but it feels sometimes like the systems could be more joined up as well, you know, just to enable a bit of smoother data transfer. Do you think we'll get that in the future? Yeah, like I suppose that's interesting to think about in, in different contexts. Um, I mean, like within the private sector, it depends on you know, the, the partnerships and the relationships between those organisations and, and who is it that's... that's Hold the data and controlling the data, um, and then in the public sector, I suppose it's where we might, as a, as users or yeah, users of, of public sector services, we might uh, expect or want uh, something a bit more data sharing to happen. Um, thinking about you know between different parts of the health service or between healthcare and social care, yeah, um, where actually data sharing is really important to enable appropriate, timely, um, efficient you know, care and, and, and access to services. Um, but it's not always as, as straightforward as that. Um, and actually a lot of the, the systems that need to be in place to enable that that you know, joining up of data or linking of data, um, a lot of the systems are not are not yet really built to enable the, the level of sharing that we might like. Um, I know a lot of the NHS departments are still using fax machines. So when we start talking about AI and, <laughs> and, and data linkage, it's, you know, there are some basic things we need to deal with first. Um, but I think also we, we need, you know, we need a public conversation around this and, you know, on what, on what terms we're, we're happy with data sharing and on, for what purposes and who we're happy of having access to that. Yeah, it's back to that trust again. Okay, moving on to the actual risks now. So, so Chris, are the risks the same as they've always been? You know, people tricking individuals out of money or threatening cyber attacks on, on a business of operation. Uh, you know, they've, they've been around for quite a long time. Or are we seeing a more sinister escalation? You know, we, we know about the Russian cyber attacks in uh, 2007 and, uh, you know, numerous unproven acts of online sabotage where no responsibility is claimed, but the finger is generally pointed in certain directions. Are the risks the same now as they've always been? I think they're, they're definitely escalating in terms of the way in which our lives depend on a data infrastructure, which we don't fully understand. If we think of, say, a, a, a power station, which is then connected to the internet, do we fully understand the compl complex system that underpins that power station and its operation and its connection to the World Wide Web? Was that ever planned? Was that is that just an evolved system? So I think there's there's an increase in cascading risks as all of these systems start connecting. So that there's a lot of um, 
I think, risk that we don't fully understand um, across uh, probably the infrastructure which keeps society safe. And I think that will that will continue until, like Lisa said, a lot of those um, kind of data professionals and the, and the the literacy of the profession starts starts increasing, and we start mapping uh, the dependencies and interdependencies that that kind of manage our infrastructure. Very. How do we make people care enough about their data? Uh, that's a, a really big question. Um, recognition of the value of data. I mean, the value the commercial value that it has to the companies who are collecting this, but also the value that it has, has to us connected to our identities, to our lives and, and who we are. Um, and orienting a conversation around that, you know, what, what does this represent? What does it mean? And what are the potential harms of it being misused are really important. But I also think connected to that, we need not just a focus on kind of individual responsibility, like, yes, we need to make active, active decisions as users of these technologies, but really the focus should be on how these companies are using our their responsible their responsibilities and whether or not they are being responsible with our data mm. and much more emphasis on how we demand responsible use and responsible collection of our data um, and how we hold these organizations to account and ensure accountability within that uh, and i'd like to see a lot more emphasis on on that side of things and and not um yeah i'd, I'd see a lot, lot more emphasis on that side of things alongside kind of individual informed choices and yeah. their actions. Lisa, you're agreeing a lot. You're nodding a lot there. You agree yeah, with definitely, that? Yeah, definitely, because I don't think it can be all on the individual, can it? I think there's a balance here between um, what is um, legislated or the regulation that comes in, the responsibility of these big tech companies, as well as an individual. If we just leave it all on the individual, I don't think that's very fair. Because I don't think, I mean, all of us have seen all the terms and conditions that you sign up to. And I think I heard one fact that if you read them all, you'd spend three months reading them all. You know, it's so much. How can you take in all that information? If you're not a data professional, half this stuff is gobbledygook to you. So um, there's got to be a balance between what's regulated for, what's responsible tech um, is doing, as well as then what's on an individual. It can't just be for the individual. So it's, it's clear our personal data is, is valuable. Obviously, it is to us, but actually it's valuable to other people as well. So how do we prevent that data that many of us are quite happy to share from falling into the wrong hands? We spoke to Vladislav Tushnikov. He's the lead data security guru at Kaspersky, the cybersecurity firm. Here's what he had to say. Every step that you take online usually leaves traces. This is called your digital footprint. First of all, your internet service provider, they know what kind of website you access. Then the website itself, it knows what pages you access, what data you input, etc. There are so-called third-party trackers, which are basically pieces of code that are implanted by companies that work on advertising and behavior analytics, and they also log all your actions, and sometimes as meticulously as logging every mouse movement that you make. You don't pay for social network websites. The data that uh, you generate while using your social networks is stored and analyzed to serve you what's called relevant advertising. When you log onto social media, the content is generated by you, your friends, relatives. They're specifically designed for you to connect with other people, share your thoughts, share photos, videos, etc. From what you do, a lot of different and sometimes quite sensitive inferences can be made. So the people that you connect to, 
If we know their views and beliefs, we can make inferences about what your views and beliefs are. If your social media privacy settings are lax, uh, basically you might assume that some company or some person might scrape this data, so basically make a copy of the data on your social network and then use it to, for example, fuel some data-driven products such as a facial recognition system. And there were precedents of that and we, we know about them. When you share something on the internet, what it should do is it should think how it can affect you. It's called threat modeling. If you don't engage in oversharing, that is sharing too much information, and if you think for a second before you post, usually you should be all right. There are many privacy controls on social networks. Only let your family, your friends, close friends access your photos, and then they usually shouldn't go public. Despite all that I've said, I don't advocate against using social networks or internet. The internet, social media are an integral part of the way we live. Usually it's completely safe to shop online. However, where there's money, there's fraudsters, right? Then there's phishing. Phishing is when fraudsters create a website which looks just like the original website. Usually people land on these websites when they receive an email. And this email might uh, use some scare tactic, like saying your account, your bank account has been compromised and there is a pending transaction of all your money that you have. And if you don't log in right now, you can lose all that money. Just call the bank. Don't rush, click, enter your credentials on the web. Many people, they use simple passwords, they reuse passwords across different websites, and these all are threats to your account. What people might do is to use unique, strong, secure passwords, and also use what's called two-factor authentication, which is when you receive a confirmation code when you log in on your smartphone, as an SMS or in a special application. If you use that and you use, for example, a password manager to store all your unique, secure, long passwords, then you probably should be safe. Some wise words there. So Lisa, what can we as individuals do to protect ourselves wherever we share our data? Do we have to, to put up with it and, and pay for you know antivirus, anti-cyber attack software? Or are people going further and actually ditching their Alexa? Oh, I don't think they are, are they? So I think that comes back to the digital resignation. I think there's some things to remember that um, I always say, if you're not paying for it, then you are the product. So remember that because there is a business model that sits behind it. It's about thinking about, you know, how you use your data online, um, how where you use your email. It's also thinking about how you do your searches online. I mean, I mean, I use DuckDuckGo as my search engine because I'm not comfortable with my data being used in, by other search engines in that way. But not many people have heard of some of those search engines and don't understand the way the data is going across platforms. And I've been quite surprised. I've got I've got children, and um, I've been quite surprised that they don't get this education at school. You know, like using um, two-factor authentication, making sure you've got a password manager. These are all the sorts of things that are coming through that you need to consider if you're thinking about um, being safe online. There's quite a lot of basics that everybody needs to do. But definitely, if you're not paying for it, then you are the product. Should we think again before we join social networks, Vary, or just be careful about our online activities? 
it's really about making informed and active choices about this. Social networks are such a, a big part of our lives now. Like, yes, you, you could choose not to, to uh, join any of them or, or not to participate in, you know, in social networks or on these kind of online platforms. But actually the impact that that has on our, our lives is, is, is significant now. Um, it's a significant impact on level of convenience, but also level of, of connectedness. Um, you know, your social networks like uh, Facebook groups, WhatsApp groups are, are such a part of how people connect, you know, through community organizations, um, mm. school clubs, extra yeah. in, in schools and these kinds of things. It's reached the point where it is it is a significant um, impact in terms of your convenience and your connectedness to remove yourself from these. It takes a, a continuous effort and active um active choices to to not participate in these systems so actually it's it's, it's very very hard not to it's-, it's really interesting the sort of whatsapp group and things you know I, I have a whatsapp group for my for my daughter's class at school and then be, there's so many things that come through it so you feel like it, it's an integral part of your life and and you'd be missing out if you weren't part of it Okay, let's move on to AI now. And and Chris, you mentioned this before. The most obvious application that strikes fear into some people is the driverless car. And of course, they should really be referred to as self-driving cars. Um, And the great aspiration is that widespread adoption of automated driving systems could save thousands of lives every year by avoiding many of the crashes that are caused by human error. Um, Chris, what did the World Risk poll show about self-driving cars? Most people weren't that keen on them. And considering most people haven't been in them, I mean, I've not been in a self-driving car or a fully autonomous car. Globally, nearly two thirds of people would not feel safe in a self-driving car. So that's, you know, as a, as a globally representative uh, survey, just 27% of people globally said they would feel safe. Uh, and in no country or region did more than 45% of people say they would feel safe. The, the key kind of piece that, that separated people was education. So that played a real a real role in confidence. So people with higher levels of education are most likely to say they would feel safer safer in a self driving car. So overall, about thirty five percent of those with a with a post secondary education um, responded in that way, versus twenty eight percent of those with a secondary education and twenty five percent with a primary education or less. So the amount of education you have seems to to give you more confidence that um, self driving cars uh, are safer. Yeah. So there's a lot of education to do if we do want driverless cars globally there's a lot of education that needs to happen i think a lot, a lot of what we've been talking about is around those those private organizations who have uh, you know vested interests in this and actually how you how you look at the autonomy of these um these systems and how you then regulate that is a very hard thing they're often black boxes which you know the company won't want opened up so it becomes very hard to then regulate what is a self-driving car from one company versus another when they're using totally different algorithms and totally different artificial intelligence technologies. So your regulation of that system versus, say, an engine where you can regulate quite successfully you know, how it switches on and, and the different uh, standards that you put in place, it's a lot harder with, with self-driving and autonomous systems. Um, the, the way in which you regulate that is, is still not clear. Um, yet we are already at the marketplace where you know some companies are claiming nearly full autonomy on the roads when in in countries where that's not not regulated well or even le- legislated for so that there's a whole um piece there around technology moving faster than regulatory systems can 
and faster than people are really aware of as well, I think. Yeah, it's the whole sort of trust again, isn't it? We're back to the trust side, Lisa. You know, can can we trust AI to, to adopt thinking and reasoning and reactions in the way that humans can? Yeah, I think well, some of the evidence has shown from self-driving cars, they're safer than human drivers. Um, but pe- people are less likely to accept an accident from a self-driving car than they, for, they, than they are from a human which I think is really interesting. And it's also about the, how the cars are designed. So at the moment, the cars are designed to protect the driver and not the pedestrian, because nobody would want to buy a car that wouldn't keep them safe. So there's a real ethical dilemma there, actually. But I mean, there's so many applications where AI is vitally important. You know, if you think about healthcare, machine learning processes, huge data sets, it increases the accuracy of patient diagnoses. AI algorithms drive climate models to help make informed climate policy. Teachers use AI-powered games and tools to help the needs of individual pupils. So, th- so there's loads of really good things there as well. AI is best. AI are um, systems to support human decision-making or complement human judgment. They're, mm. they're systems that are incredibly effective at, effective at processing large volumes of data, increasing efficiency in mundane tasks. A lot of the kind of public imagery around AI is really sensational, you know, this killer robots and, and you know, yes. like the, the sensationalism. Whereas the reality is you know, more efficient processes for, you know, processing large volumes of data, right? Which is not the not the headline grabbing stuff, but that's what AI does. Um, and and I, but I think that's a really, really important message to get across because AI isn't something that is, you know, magical. It's never going to get everything right. It's something, it's a program which is d- developed and designed by humans with all the imperfections, prejudices, values, everything that, that go into that. Uh, and we need to think of these systems in that way. And only by understanding that that's what they are, can we hold them to account and can we scrutinize them and ask the right questions and demand that they are used appropriately. Um, okay, crystal ball time. Very. what does the future hold in this data-driven world? My optimistic view is that the the capacities of, 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 of data and technologies, the ability to use AI is more and more in the hands of everyday people. Um, mm. I feel like that's where there's such amazing things that can happen, uh, where it's less about being controlled by big companies and corporations, but actually thinking about what community groups, what charitable charitable organizations uh, and you know community groups could do with the power of data and AI to advocate for their interests, to understand um, or identify problems and challenges in their communities and find creative solutions. That yeah. that's what excites me. That's what I uh, that's what I'd love to see the future of AI having a, a bigger impact in. That's lovely. A good positive one as well. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, Chris. What about you? Is your future as positive? I would love for uh, the future of the countries that haven't adopted or got as far as we have to to learn and make less mistakes that that we have we have made. So it'd be great if you know where the the largest populations of, of young people are in, in Africa, say, it'd be great if they don't have to go through the same same lessons that we've had to learn and, and you know, go through that much more uh, human-centred ownership of data and, um, you know, make better choices. Brilliant. Thank you. And Lisa, are you going to keep us optimistic? Always. So I think for the future, it's about responsible data sharing, be that from companies where actually we can tackle some of the big issues that we're facing, like climate change, or for individuals as well, to knowing that they can donate their data for personalised healthcare um, or things like that. So I think, yeah, responsible data sharing in the future and the use of AI is where I see it going. 
That's brilliant. What a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. That's all for today. Thank you very much to Dr. Vary Aitken from the Turing Institute, Lisa Allen from the Open Data Institute, and Chris White, a Senior Programme Manager at Lloyd's Register Foundation. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Please do join us again for the next episode of the Global Safety Podcast with Lloyd's Register Foundation. And remember to follow or subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you. Bye.